Open our Bibles to Ezra. In the Old Testament, Ezra chapter 7 is where we are. And this morning we are learning about spiritual leadership and about being a mentor. It being Mother's Day and then also the fact that we've had this sort of affirmation of young people and how pastors and parents have given input into their lives. That's a symbol of what we're talking about. Spiritual leadership is being a mentor or an example. Uh, this last week I was talking to a college uh, student from our church who had come back and I was talking to her about the fact that I wondered if she knew this certain gal who would be her age at her college down in California. And I was saying, you know, do you know this gal named Morgan? And I've kind of asked that question just to see if they would connect. Well, I, I don't even personally know Morgan, but I know her dad. And her dad is from Virginia Beach, Virginia, where I grew up, and her dad's a pastor, and he was one of my first mentors. He spent time with me. He, he called me into his office as a young high schooler and college student, and he taught me the Word of God. Have you ever had a mentor like that, someone who cared about you, who knew you intimately and personally, and took the Scripture and the time to apply it specifically into your life? If you've experienced that, that is life transforming. And I wasn't so curious to know really how that gal is doing in college as much as to make a connection through that relationship back in my heart to my mentor. That's why I was asking about that relationship. I knew that gal when she was six months old and she was Morgan, little baby Mo. You know, and I just, I'm more interested in making a connection to my mentor because mentors are like fathers, they're like parents, they're like older brothers to you, older sisters, older women in the Lord. Um, it's it's an incredibly significant connection to connect to the heart and life of a person. And that's what we're doing in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra is an example Jesus said that, you know, a disciple is not greater than his teacher, but after he's been fully trained, he'll be like him. Paul said, imitate me as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And so, in a very real way, what we're doing this morning and the past few mornings on Sunday morning is learning from a man, Ezra, a godly man, and we want him and his life to rub off on us. What's unique about the verses we're going to study this morning is that verses 27 and 28 are where Ezra begins to speak in first person. It's where he's going to share his heart with us. Um, Ezra showed up in chapter 7. He's the, the name for whom the book is named. He's the hero of the story, the leader. And now we're learning about him in verses 1 through 11. And now we're going to learn this morning from him. Not only from his life, but from his lips. Jesus said, you know, out of the heart um, comes, the, out of the mouth proceed the things of the heart. And so a person's heart is shared by what they say. We're going to learn about what he cares about, what he loves, and hopefully that will rub off. We learned, you know, over the last couple of weeks that Ezra was a man of credibility, extreme credibility, cosmopolitan um, feel in, in terms of his ability to get out of his comfort zone and connect with people. He's a capable man with the word of God. We've learned that he was courageous. He was bold. We've learned that he was consecrated. He had a strong relationship with the Lord. He was compelling. People followed him. And he was committed to the word of God. Now I want to learn from his heart. Follow as I read verses 27 
and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. And before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra was a man, and he's flesh and blood a long time ago, just like you and I are today. Wasn't perfect. He faced incredible challenges, and he faced them with bravery. And this morning, from his testimony, I want you to learn how he became brave. Specifically, how he was able to make himself brave. Look at verse 28. These three words uh, in our text show us how Ezra made himself brave. It says, I took courage. Literally, it's the idea of I strengthened myself. That's what it literally means. I made myself brave. That's what this man had to do. And what I want us to learn from his living example and from how he spoke about life is how this man made himself brave. I know we're from Alaska and we're supposed to be strong and we, we survive very hard winters. Um, I'm supposed to potentially go out on a caribou hunt and kill something, right? And, and be part of the, the gutting process. I'm really looking forward to that. And, and that takes, you know, some toughness. But what we're talking about here is being brave in your heart. Where you face things that are very, very difficult. And Ezra shows us the key to how this man became this kind of leader, this kind of transformer, reformer, this kind of guy who could talk to the king, who could look at the Supreme Court justices of the land and face his fears with bravery. How did he do it? Well, three ways. I'll just give them away right now. Number one, if you're going to be brave, you've got to affirm the sovereignty of God to your own heart. Number two, you got to affirm the faithfulness of God, that God is faithful. God is king and he is faithful. Number three, you got to affirm the goodness of God, that God is good. The sovereignty of God. Let me show you from the text uh, where he affirms the sovereignty of God. Verse 27, he begins with worship. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. Now watch this, who put such a thing into as this, into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord. What Ezra's doing is he's saying, listen, I know that the king is doing something as a pagan king that's pretty radical. He's, he's blessing Jerusalem, and he's part of this building project, and he's funding this building project, and he's all in. But I know that there's something secret that's happening behind the scenes, and that is that, God, you are worthy of worship, and you've moved this man's heart. What he's saying by that is, God, you're in control. God, you are sovereign. You're the ruler. You say, well, how does that work out in your day-to-day life? Well, I'll give you an example, and this is a small little trial in our lives right now. It's not a big one, but I was in the doctor's office with Judy, with Brady. And if you know our twins, Brady and Carson, you have Jacob and Esau. He's Jacob. And there we are in the doctor's office. 
And what he's got going on right now, he's got some infection that's in the bone in his finger. Came through the nail bed. Won't get into the details of that. However, it hadn't been healing very well. And so basically we had to go to a specialist. And that specialist was telling us what our options are. And basically he's going to get some ramped up antibiotics and a PIC IV. All right, I don't want to know, okay? If you know details and dangers, I don't want to know. But we're basically going down this road. But I had to make a choice in that moment, and you've sat there before and listened to news from a doctor, right? You have to take the news in, and you want it to be this. You want it to be a 10, and sometimes it's going to be an 8 or a 7 or a 6 in terms of what you want. And this was about, you know, a 7.5. And, and my heart began to do that sort of funny thing where you, you want to fear things and outcomes and whatever. And at that moment, I made a choice to apply this message and to make myself brave by saying, God, you're sovereign. And so whatever's happening, whatever this doctor says or whatever the outcome is, you're in control. You're sovereign. Psalm 103, we read it earlier. The Lord is in the heavens and his kingdom or his sovereignty rules over all. Now, we believe this in a variety of ways. We believe it in terms of the macro. We know God knows the end from the beginning. He created all things. He's ruling. And I definitely believe in the human free will of man. I don't believe we're automatons or we're puppets on a string. I'm not a determinist. But at the same time, I believe in the mysterious, behind-the-scenes involvement of God. And as he works, he's allowing for things to happen that's all crafted and predetermined by his sovereign plan and how you fit those things together is a mystery but God is in control and I'll tell you this we need to know that as we face life if you're going to be brave you got to know that you're not out there fighting your own personal battle by yourself but you're with a God who's ruling in and through the circumstances God is in control I want to show you how how did Ezra have this mindset because it's a mindset that we have to have ourselves Ezra had this mindset because he was a man of the Word of God. He was so known for being connected to the Word of God that a pagan king who was the, the leader of the free world, this king, Artaxerxes, actually calls him king of, himself king of kings. Very interesting. Uh, and we know he's not the ultimate king of kings, but he thought he was. He'd be like the president of the United States and then the UN. That's the kind of authority this guy wielded. And he was captivated by this man, Ezra, because he was a man of the word. Just look in your Bibles. I'm going to sort of read through a section that is a letter that, Ezra, that Artaxerxes wrote on behalf of Ezra's mission. It begins in verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest. The scribe, look at this, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings to Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace and now. I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. It's all part of the mission we've been talking about. He's going to get 1,500 men and then women and babies and some elderly people to, to go down on this mission to bring the word to Jerusalem and sort of buttress the temple worship. So the king's all involved in this and affirming this. Now look at verse 14. You are sent by the king and his seven counselors, like the Supreme Court justices, to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand. Note that, the law of God 
It's in Ezra's hand. That's what the king respects about it. And also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and the gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with free will offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. So he's just bankrolling this thing and saying, look, there's free will offerings. There's all kinds of money that is going to go to make this thing happen. Verse 17, skip there. With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs and their grain offerings, their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that's in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. And so he's, he's saying, look, we're going to give you animals. We're going to give you money. We're going to make this thing happen for you. We're going to give you your temple vessels back. Verse 19, the vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. So if you're, you're missing anything, just dig into our own pockets and we will give it to you. Now look at the authority he vests into Ezra here. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, again, the connection to the word, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talons of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. I'll stop here for a second. I want you to see something. It's interesting. Verse 23, there's a very mixed motive in the king's heart. It's just like Cyrus and Darius before him. He wants to win the free um, will goodness of that particular God. He's impressed by Ezra. He's impressed by Ezra's wisdom in the word. And so he wants a connection with this God to bless him. Look at verse 23. He says, let it be done, verse 23, lest his wrath... Be against the realm of the king and his sons. So he's sort of got a, a vested interest here for this thing to go well because he wants some splash effect blessing back on him. And he's not a believer. He's just affirming that, hey, this God's powerful too. Verse 24. We also notify that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, he gives him, look, executing power here. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as you, such know the all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever shall not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly ex executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So he's saying, listen, you're a man of the word. You're a scribe. You're a person, he says literally, who has wisdom. Verse 25, the wisdom of your God that is in your hand. I'm affirming you as a wise leader. And because of that, you have execution power on people who buck this plan. So he's being very affirming of this person because of the word of God. And that affirmation carries into the testimony of Ezra. He was a man of the word. He was just like you and me. He was just raised up in a unique way who had a biblical 
worldview who was able to see beneath the surface that God was the reason that this plan was moving forward. Ezra wasn't puffed up in his mind saying, oh, look, you know, I'm the guy who's going to lead this, this team of 1,500 people back home and look how great I am. No, he's saying, blessed be you, God, because you're the one who put this whole thing into the king's heart. Look at Proverbs 21.1. I've quoted this a few times. It's so appropriate to just look at it in your Bibles just to see this truth playing out. You know, with our political race that's going on or, you know, it's about to ensue between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, we have to be careful to remember and recognize that God is in control of the hearts of the kings. And so as we root for people, and it's good to root for certain politicians and root for values and root for, you know, biblical principles. But if we, you know, feel like we're losing, we shouldn't be that way because we should be growing in Christ and stable. We should be the most stable people in a political discussion that's out there. We should have strong equilibrium and strength because our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. God is sovereign and God is in control no matter how we're doing on the morality roller coaster of the United States of America. And our strength and our faith will be a greater witness even if things get worse. And guess what? The Bible promises that they're going to get worse before they get better. Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, that God has the heart of the President of the United States in his hand? Now, we don't understand um, how that works out, but God is in control. Look at verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So even when people sin, when people make decisions, when people do wrong things, God knows. He knows the heart. He knows the motivations. He knows what's going on. And somehow he's uniquely in control, even when people are sinning. Now, I'm concerned. I'm concerned for our country and the messages that go out. And I'm concerned with the liberalism that's on display publicly in our news media. This week I clicked on a, a little media window that was MSN. And it was Barack Obama talking about how his, his position for same-sex marriage has evolved. How it's grown in a certain way and the basis for that per his own lips and testimony was his discussions that he's been having with his daughters and with his wife about how his daughters have spent time in the homes with friends whose parents are same sex and he says look we you know how could we treat those parents any differently than anyone else well guess what Barack Obama, at that point, as he was speaking, was not thinking in terms of what this word says. He was deeply being, he was confessing of his deep influence from his children to his own heart, from talking to his wife to his own heart. And we are influenced by our children. We are influenced by our spouse, and we should be, but not to the expense of God's word. A leader in the home takes God's word as truth. And you start with truth, and then you understand reality instead of letting experience transform the way you think about your reality. The Word of God is what needs to build our worldview. Now, interestingly, 
least it was interesting to me. I woke up on Saturday, which is always a good thing to wake up again and face another day. Woke up on Saturday and 6.30 in the morning, that's, you know, sleeping in because the bio clock is set that way. And so there I am and I flip on the TV and kind of trip into C-SPAN. And there's Mitt Romney, Governor Mitt Romney, addressing my alma mater, Liberty University, and the commencement address at Liberty. Now, first of all, he's a Mormon, and so that's weird to me. It's odd. And, you know, he is not a Christian, according to God's Word and how God's Word describes Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man. But at the same time, he's at center stage. And this is sort of a, you know, obviously, a cable, nationally covered event. So he's speaking... And at a certain point, even though he's a Mormon, he's connecting with biblical truth, starting with God's word in terms of how you define marriage. He says marriage is between a man and a woman, a covenant made by God. And people applaud. And at that point, I'm applauding too because it's a perspective that starts with God's word. And that's what transforms lives and cultures. Romans 1, it just says, you know, that things are going to get worse and worse. And a telltale that things are morally in decline is that people exchange their natural desires for perversions and begin to be attracted to their same sex. It's as clear as that. And you either start with what God's word says and calls that, call that sin, or you don't. Or you start with experience and sort of define it in terms of how, you know, the culture thinks today. There's a leadership vacuum, my friends. And it's something that we shouldn't get depressed about. This is the time for the Christians to stand up with God's word and say, here's truth. This is how you're supposed to think. God is sovereign and in control. And this is what his word says. Even if... We have leaders who gravitate towards liberalism. God's in control of that, and this is what God's word says. That's how we speak into the culture. That's how we clarify things for people. And that's how we reach someone who is trapped in homosexuality. How do you get them out of the trap? The gospel. And the more that we're willing to be bold and say, look, this is wrong, because this is where marriage comes from biblically, the more we're equipped and armed with the opportunity to see someone's life transformed. What breaks the chains of sin? The truth of the gospel. The gospel of grace. And we should be in prayer for people as they are ensnared in all kinds of sin. We shouldn't condemn people, but we need to be clear on biblical truth. Amen? God is in control. God is sovereign. And we dare not unulate as our culture goes up and down. We should be firm and strong. Well, first of all, we have to believe God is sovereign. Secondly, we have to believe and affirm that God is faithful. God is faithful. I think that, and let me just show you this from Scripture, I think that this is a very, very important truth. When you start to talk about God in great big terms and being in control and trying to piece that together, sometimes it's easy to depersonalize God. That's not what Ezra does. Instead of saying God is king of the universe, and so he's out there, Ezra says God's king of the universe, so he's intimately king of my life. Let me show you this in verse 28. 
Speaking of God, he says, and who extended to me his steadfast love. Stop there. Extended. It literally means he, he put upon me something. He, he put upon me something. What that is, he put a covenant commitment of love upon me. You got to hear this truth. This is very, very important to the Christian life. How do you make yourself brave? You believe God's in control of it all. And secondly, you believe he loves you and is committed to you as your heavenly father to the end. When God saved you, he adopted you for eternity, my friends. Eternity. The Bible says when you are saved, it is God setting his affection upon you. It is the prodigal son story where the father is looking for the rebellious son to adopt and put the robe of commitment on the son's shoulders and welcome them in and throw a party because this is a sealed deal. Ephesians 1 says when we are saved, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Romans chapter 8 says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. There are people who believe that, you know, once you're saved, you can separate yourself from that love. That belief comes from the idea that we somehow had something to do with getting ourselves saved in the first place. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, fill in, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man shall boast. That's where our confidence comes from. The fact that you are saved and you are adopted is a set deal for eternity. It is the greatest gift that can ever be given to you, but it is indeed, my friends, a gift of God. If I ever had anything to do with my salvation, I would have messed it up a long time ago, right? God saves you, and he does it right. And he bases his commitment on himself, not on you. And that humble understanding is what gives us the security and the bravery to take on any challenge in life. God, you're in control, and God, you love me, and you set your love upon me. There's times where you're not going to feel like praying. There's times where you're going to not feel like you're a child of God, and all you can come back to is that anchor, God, you love me, even if I don't feel like I love you right now, right? That's adoption. That's what it means to be Romans 9, crying out to God and saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, I know you're out there. I know you love me. It doesn't feel like we have a relationship right now. I've blown it again, but God, you love me. That's adoption, and that's eternal security, my friends. That is a gospel truth that we cling to and we hang on to because it makes us brave. Sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. We have to affirm that to ourselves. God works all things together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then secondly, God's covenant faithfulness, his intimate care and love for us. It's another affirmation that you've got to have warm in your heart to be brave. Salvation, the covenant word there is hesed. That's what faithfulness um, is from that's the Hebrew word has said it's it's thrown all through the Bible um, the word covenant is the idea of making a commitment and it's the word karath it's the idea of of making a blood sacrifice 
cutting an animal into commitment. I was just looking back in my Bible to sort of warm my heart about God's covenant to us and how we had nothing to do with our salvation. And I read through the story of Abraham, and that's one of the first profound covenants in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant. And what that story is, you know it well. God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make you, you know, the father of a great nation because of your faith. That wasn't what you did, but you are believing, and so I'm going to bless that and make a great nation, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we're part of that family, and he is the father of faith even to us. But it wasn't anything Abraham did to make that happen. It was just God doing it. And he displays that in Genesis 12 with this story. He says, Abraham, look, go get some rams, go get some lambs, go get some bulls, and cut them in half. Just like, you know, I'm going to probably cut on some animal in August with a caribou hunt, right? Just never done that before. You know, blood sacrifice will take on new meaning to me, right? This is really whetting the appetite for the Mother's Day dinner. Okay, all right, there we go. Okay, so cut those animals in half. And in Genesis 12, you can read it later, God puts Abraham to sleep. Go to sleep. There's a pathway carved out between those animals that's a symbol of this commitment. And the glory fire of God passes through those animals while Abraham's asleep. Why is Abraham asleep? He's asleep as a symbol of showing that Abraham had nothing to do with God's covenant commitment to him. Abraham didn't have anything to do with it. And so Abraham couldn't screw it up. That's unilateral. That's God's saving grace alone that saves and keeps. It's the gospel. So we affirm, number one, that God is sovereign. And number two, we affirm that God is faithful, that his inward work of God is always at work in our lives. Hey, we looked at this already. Just look real quickly, Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his, here's the word, steadfast love, covenant-keeping love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Look at verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Verse 19, it speaks of his sovereignty over all of that. And then if you look uh, to Lamentations, which is a book just past Jer Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah the weeping prophet who it talks about in the first chapter. Oh, he has tears streaming down his face. And then in Lamentations chapter 3, you have, you have a testimony of hope. Now you've got to recapture the scene here. You have Jeremiah who's, sta who's standing in front of his temple city. This is right before those who went up to Babylon in exile, you know, were captured by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. This is where the Babylonians had just burned down the temple in the first place. The place had been nuclear bombed. And so Jeremiah's standing there in despair as the missionary pastor over Jerusalem that's burning down. And what does he say? Verse 22. The steadfast, there's that word, steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy, mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Let's say it together. Great is your faithfulness. Look at his testament. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope. Do you want to have hope? Do you want to slay anxiety in your life? Do you want to slay insomnia in your life, worry, guilt, fear, depression, despondency. You want to attack that, you have to attack it with believing God is sovereign, 
And God is committed to you. How does this work out? Look at verse 37. This is Jeremiah confessing the sovereignty of God. He says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Listen, if you believe in the sovereignty of God and in God's intimate love and care in your life, then when horrible things happen, like, hey, hey, I'm Jeremiah, and I'm called to preach the gospel to a city. Oh, wait, the whole city's burning to the ground. What, what am I going to do, you know? Where's my missionary support going to come from, man? You know, if you're going to reconcile that in your life, you've got to believe God's in control of that moment, even though it was, it was done by pagan sinners to God's nation. And you can't figure all of why that's happening in the moment, but you can place truth on it and say, God, I still know that you are ruling and reigning and in control. That's the way you do it. You say, what, how, how do you reconcile the tsunami that hits that you know, drags families and children and babies out into the ocean? How is God in control of that? We're not going to have that answer, but we just have the answer from Scripture in general that he's in control. You see? God is in control. How, how do, why does God allow sin in the world? It's the problem of evil question. We're not going to really have that answer nailed down in our finite minds, but God's the author of everything that's happened. He's the author and finisher of everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's on the throne overseeing and superintending every event that's ever happened. He's in control of the hearts of the kings. And so we affirm that, and that's what keeps us strong and brave through a confusing, sin-cursed world that we're called to reach. But Jeremiah was able to do. Lastly, we've got the sovereignty of God we've got to affirm, and we affirm the faithfulness of God. And lastly, we, we have to affirm the goodness of God. The goodness of God. I find this back in Ezra. It's under the word love, which should be translated good. Ezra chapter 7, verse 28. The steadfast love. The word love there is good. It's that God is good. Love is found more in the word steadfast. And then you should also have in there the goodness of God. Almost like the steadfast, loving goodness of God would be a literal translation. If you have as two handles to grab onto when you're faced with trials or, or difficult circumstances, the sovereignty of God and God's covenant-keeping goodness in your life, if you've got those two handholds, you can drive. You can make it. God's good. When trials come, God's good. God's working all things together for His good, for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You have this story in Genesis of Joseph. You remember it? He was dissed by his brothers. He was left for dead by his brothers. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was lied about to Joseph's dad who loved him by his brothers. Intimate family, hurt, ripped off in life, imprisoned, left, forgotten about, accused of raping Potiphar's wife. And then, because of his character and God's hand of blessing, he rose to second in command in Egypt, and he's sitting there before his brothers, exposing to himself who he is. And his brothers are thinking, well, it's the axe for us. 
But this is what Joseph says. And, it, and again, it's first person. It's coming out of his mouth, out of his heart. How do you cope with very difficult, life-crushing circumstances? You have this kind of perspective. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph wasn't reconciling all of that. He was just affirming biblical truth. You got to be able to do that. Affirming God is sovereign. God loves you intimately. He's faithful to you. And He's good. He's working out His good plan, His good purposes that we're not always going to be able to reconcile and understand this side of glory, maybe ever. How, how do we consider it joy when we encounter various trials and testings? We know that the testing of our faith is producing endurance. Producing something good in us, even when it's really, really, really hard. God is good. You know, there was a time where I was uh, putting myself through seminary. I was still single. I was 21 and was teaching swimming, and I did that. I mean, it was a tough life. Southern California, pools all over the place, and teaching kids how to refine their strokes for 25 bucks an hour. It was really great. Anyway, hard labor, right? But the great part about that job for me was I got to be involved in families' lives. So parents who care about their kids learning how to swim um, is a great venue to connect with a mom or a dad who's sitting poolside and to share your faith with them. And so I did that. I shared my faith a lot. And there was a Buddhist family, two Buddhist kids, and I was teaching them how to swim. But I was also trying to witness to the mom, and she was really receptive to the gospel. And so through the course of a few months, uh, she invited me. She said, look, can you come over and, and have a dinner with our family? She knew I was going on a missions trip with the Master's College to New Zealand to do some teaching, preaching, and ministry in the North and South Island. And she wanted me to report on that at a dinner. So I went, showed up. They fed me well. The kids were there, and they asked me some questions about New Zealand, and I talked through some things. Then the parents at a certain point said to the kids, can you be dismissed and just go in the other room and watch video? And so the parents looked at me sort of with a new tone of seriousness and they said, why do bad things happen to good people? I'm like, okay, you know, all my sort of like knowledge wheels are turning as fast as they can. I'm wondering where in the world I should go with this. I didn't really know the husband as well as the wife, and I'm sort of sitting there trying to navigate that conversation, and I just told the story of Joseph very similarly to how I just did with you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God is sovereign even though bad things are happening. But then they went to the question beneath the question and put their hearts on the table to me as a 21-year-old and said, listen, um, the, the husband just said, I've been unfaithful to my wife. That's the bad thing that's happening. So at that point, all you can do is take truth and apply it that God is in control. Even when life is really, really hard and there's grace and here's the gospel. So I leave that dinner. I think, man, that's what the dinner was really all about. And I go back about my business and do another year of seminary and then Come summer, I'm poolside, you know, doing another lesson. I think I did it for two summers. And this husband, this dad, sidles up next to me on the pool step, and he says, we're Christians now. 
we've left the Buddhist faith and we're Christians now and, and sort of just was celebrating almost in a casual conversation that the Lord had transformed them. We're part of this church. We're locked in and we believe. He sent me a Christmas card later on. I mean, they connected with me, with me and as, as a 21-year-old, I didn't realize how significant that connection really was. And the truth that I was telling them was saving their lives as they were hurting and broken and probably on the verge of divorce. And God cobbled them together with truth. For you to be a spiritual leader, you got to know these truths. you got to live them in your life. And you've got to affirm the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God, the love and the goodness of God in your heart every day so that you're armed and ready to help other people. You know, when you pray to, for people to be saved, you're not praying that they'll save themselves or that you'll save them, but that God will use you to intervene in their lives. And so this is just part of our ministry of throwing lifelines out to people. And that's what I'm trying to show you from the life of Ezra. Even this Old Testament saint way back when was affirming the same truths that we need to give to people now. This is how he made himself brave, and this is how he was equipped to lead people. Look at verse 28. He had to face the king, verse 28, this world ruler, and his counselors, the Supreme Court justices. There were seven of them. And before all the king's mighty officers, these were formidable leaders that he had to go eyeball to eyeball with and walk into their office and say, I think we need to do this. And he took courage in God. And then he was able to gather leading men and lead them as an army down to Jerusalem, there for the first time himself, to reform a movement for God. Here's some meditations. This is sort of how I applied this truth to my heart this week. There are, and I sort of want to just list these, but, but in the context of a sin, that you could be involved in, that it's a sin that I fight in my own heart. And just bring up the first meditation. There are two competing mindsets that are out there. Either you rule, you're saying I rule, or God rules. They're always at work in our lives, either I rule or God rules. Now, we know that God rules even if we think that we are ruling, right? We understand that. However, sometimes we put ourselves on our own fleshly pride throne and say, I'm ruling. I'm in control of this. I've got this. That's sin. That's pride. It, it's where we think that we are being strong when we're really being weak, and it leads to all kinds of difficulties in our lives. And I think it's just very important for us to understand that God's word is calling us to bow in submission to the Lordship of Christ every day of our lives and say, I don't want to face this or that alone or in my own strength. This project, this difficult conversation with my child, my teenager, or my spouse, I don't want to do that in my own strength. I won't do that in my own flesh. Jesus, you rule. And I'm establishing and affirming what already is true. So you're either putting yourself on the throne or you're acknowledging that Jesus is truly the King of Kings on the throne. That's what will get you through. That will make you brave. Number two. Secondly, this is where you bring up the... There you go. If you go, if you let go of the false idea that you rule, then you will overcome many negative effects. And this sort of sounds like a uh, 
you know, prescription drug commercial, right? But <laughs> you're going to let go of worry, insomnia, hopelessness, despair, anxiety, self-induced fatigues or sickness, depression, guilt, and fear. These are good things. These are not negative side effects. These are positive side effects for you. And I mean these from the bottom of my heart. When you acknowledge that God rules instead of you ruling, you are letting go of worry. Worrying is not something that is just part of your life that is happening to you. It is something that the Bible says that we actually do. Worry is so complicated because we feel it. It it feels like it's strangling us. It feels like an outside agent coming into our lives and hearts when really, at the core, it's whether or not we are submitting to the lordship of Christ and his truth or not. And my friends, it takes discipline to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord when life is hard. It takes discipline to throw off worry and say, Lord, I'm saying it again, it's sin. I'm struggling with this. It's sin. Help me to stop. You'll sleep better. You'll pillow your head like a good Christian believing in the sovereignty of God at night. It'll give you hope that God is in control when life is falling apart. And it may fall apart in this life, but God's in control of your future where you've got an eternity to live. You know, I was talking to Pastor Steve Pauls about the idea of heaven and, uh, recently, and he put it so well. He said, you know, because we're going to get a new heavens and a new earth, it helped calm me down about trying to force all the things I wanted to do in this life in this lifetime because we get a whole nother eternal round with the new earth. Thousand-year millennial reign and then how you fit that in your future system of belief and revelation. We're going to have a new heaven and a new earth that's better than this one. Takes away despair, anxiety, self-induced fatigue. A lot of us are tired and more tired than we need to be because we're worrying ourselves sick. Trust God. You say, how does this play out? Well, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that might be good to memorize. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and what will happen? He will direct your path. Man plans the way, but the Lord directs the steps. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. God's on the throne. You're not. That's the, that's the discipline. That's the skill. Number three. Recount God's mountain peak blessings in your life as a discipline of grace. I just did that before I got up to preach. I, I was thinking about, okay, Lord, when was the first time I preached? You allowed me to preach in this little gospel tent, right? And, and, and I, I, I recounted my calling, and I recounted a friend of mine getting saved in my living room and how the gospel worked. I, I recounted that. I was making myself brave by remembering when I got saved, remembering what happened to me, remembering God's story in my life. You know the children's song, you know, count your blessings, name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God has done, something like that. That sort of Him, that sort of children's song, is the discipline. That is the way to make yourself brave. And it's a gift to us. It's a discipline of grace. Will you do it? Will you affirm that God is sovereign, that God is intimately faithful to you, and that he is good? Will you do it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this kind of commitment is not just for today, it's for a lifetime. And I pray, God, that you would work your will and your purposes in our lives as we regrip and regrasp the gospel. 
We love you, God, and we thank you that you are faithful, that you are in control, that you are all-powerful, and you are Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.